This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Austin, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Mark Rayshap. This is uh, the hour that we talk about wine and the wine industry every week, and it is our Earth Day special today because we're gearing up for Earth Day this weekend, this Saturday, and I'm joined live in the studio with John Hoffner, who is host uh, and part of the team of Shades of Green, Austin's Green Talk radio show here on Co-op. John, thank you so much for, for being here to help celebrate Earth Day. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. This is a total honor to be on another awesome in news and public affairs show. I know we have such great variety in the news and public affairs that that, that we cover here in in uh, in on co-op. And you know, your show does some really amazing things. And whenever I listen to it, I always learn something. Um, mine is maybe a, a little bit more capricious. We we talk about <laughs> wine and uh, but but there is a serious side to wine mm-hmm. and. Uh, there is it, it is a serious industry and it's an agricultural product and so there are some real serious environmental issues and that's what we're going to be talking about today over the course of this hour and I think you know just to give folks a, an introduction as to what we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be delving into all of the uh, environmental issues of the wine industry uh, starting with basically our impact of viticulture which is the it, which is the science of growing grapes mm. uh, and there's a lot going going on there, as well as uh, the environmental impact of making wine in wineries, um, and then also transporting wine as far as um, you know the packages, whether it's coming in bottles or boxes of wine and that sort of thing. So, but John, I'd like to to have you just give us an overview of your show. It's on Thursdays this time slot from one to two. Tell us a little bit about that. You've got a great team. We do. Well, thanks, Mark. And and I guess I will say this: is your industry of wine has been around a lot longer than greening up your business or, or talking about you know being sustainable. So. I don't know when have you ever figured out when was the first bottle of wine actually made? Well, bottle actually oh, well, you oh, could you okay. could yeah, yeah. So, so so that's an interesting conversation. Yes. So, you know, glass um is really changed the industry. Mm. And it was actually uh, Thomas Jefferson who was a, a really big enophile. Uh he served as ambassador to France and at the time uh you know, wine was stored in casks uh-huh. and it was sold in casks as well all throughout the Roman Empire. So so, um, you know, wine production we see uh, traced back thousands of years. Um, I mean, we see presses that are that were in the mm. Minoan Empire, thirty five hundred BC. So even yeah, back in Egyptian times, right? I but, mean, you were talking. 
thousands of years. Right, but when we say um, when we say bottles of wine, it's interesting. It was Thomas Jefferson who had, who was first kind of wrote, uh, "I'm I'm requiring the uh, bottles or the the chateau in France to actually bottle the wine." So mm. I knew, and and I and I want to um, stipulate that the owner of the winery must be present. Wine fraud was actually a big problem back mm. then, where you know it's pretty easy to open up a barrel. Take out a you know take a little wine out uh, and then fill it up cork, with water right and cork it up again right and and, and then yeah. and then the person on the other side of the Atlantic might not be the wiser but Thomas Jefferson was and he had wines bottled uh, in front of the owner of the chateau and and that's kind of a little bit of the history there interesting I didn't know that well so prior to Thomas Jefferson you couldn't have had a show called another bottle down <laughs> I know. would have be another cask down another cask down and that might cause problems we <laughs> we do we do um, promote moderation and good living here yeah, on the show indeed well th- well thanks for inviting me again in shades of green we are on uh, every thursday from 1 to 2 p.m same slot as mark here and we have a uh, co-host stacy savage reed sternberg and amy stansbury it's been evolving over the years it's actually we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary That's which incredible is, congratulations it, well thanks and to me i'm like really 10 years went by like that and we had uh, through those years several different co-hosts and we finally settled on this that that just seems to have the dynamic that you know Reed is kind of the the um, entertainer part of it but also he's very tapped into the green industry right, he's, he's right. leading the effort really for this whole earth day this weekend amy is our civics 101 expert she's basically always uh, trying to prompt people hey it's important for you to be involved in all the issues that are going on in the city or the state associated with with green issues and stacy of course is our um, solid waste wonk <laughs> she really is. She's on the solid waste committee for the city and uh, is really in, in tune with all the, the issues associated with uh, solid waste, which is so. And then I'm kind of the renewable energy solar wonk. And uh, right. so we, ha- we you know, makes it a nice match. And- so we're going to we're going to talk about some renewable energy. But just, you know, what are some of the industries that are really doing well as far as the, the, the renewable energy, um, just climate here in, mm-hmm. in, in Texas, let's uh, let's say? Well, I guess uh, I would say that the, probably the, on a large scale, the most progressive are the municipal utilities, interestingly enough. Though. So City of Austin is a leader in large-scale solar power projects. They by far are the largest in the state, coupled maybe or maybe in tied with uh, San Antonio. Yeah. So, but the investor-owned utilities, which are the large um, non-municipal utilities, are way behind the municipals. Municipals and co-ops are the, the big winners there. But then really the building industry uh, for new buildings, new homes, new um, high, not high rises, but office buildings are really seeing the, the advantage of having your building be LEED certified or certified as a green uh, builder. And and then same with houses. And there might be several facets to that discussion. I mean, one, I'm sure that builders do want to be efficient for the for environmental reasons, but also there's economic reasons to to be doing that. And yeah, you know, saving tons of energy, uh, money on on powering and and cooling and heating, and that 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 can save a lot of money, right? Absolutely. And and see, that was the notion. Really, like five to ten years ago, that oh, you know, going green or renewable—it's going to cost gonna so cost much money, money, right? And a lot of the, particularly the architects, and a lot of it goes back to the architects who are usually the the progressive thinkers in an, in a new building. And if they're not, then they're just a cookie cutter average 
builder that, or a designer that doesn't really follow all those rules. Right. So these people are finding, hey, not only do I get a lot of savings in, in energy and dollars, I also get uh, a lot of more a lot more recognition, meaning right. that, okay, the, go to this guy. He'll build you a building or design a building that is more efficient, it has a green footprint and you know, car, low carbon. And so the, that's where the industry is going. You're exactly right. If, if you don't incorporate these green features, you're almost uh, foolish and you're not saving those, all those right. dollars. So we're, we're seeing that a little bit, and this is jumping ahead a little, a little bit as far as there are a lot of wineries in California in particular that are being built that have huge, huge uh, energy efficiency and ener- energy saving uh, kind of uh, bells and whistles. And, and one of the reasons that that is is because it costs a lot. One of the key things is cooling things down in wine, mm. keeping thing, keeping rooms cool, where, where barrels, barrels love to be in this right. 55 degree, in 55, 60 degree environment. Uh, and that can take an immendous amount of money to keep those, th- those, those buildings cool. Mm. Um, whereas, and, and oftentimes in wine country, there's a, a lot of uh, sunshine too. So it seems to me like a really ripe uh, climate for, for, for renewable energies and particular solar. Yes. Uh, I think one of the challenges that, and, and you know, we'll talk about uh, over the course of this show, we'll talk about uh, some of the things that France is doing, some of the things that California and Oregon and Washington state are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texas, I think the wine industry here is still relatively new. Um, and some of these things do take some initial investment. And, um, and, and I, th- I think that we're, we're going, we're a little behind uh, California, but we're, we're, the industry is about 50 years behind them anyway, as terms of their evolution. So, mm-hmm. um, so, but we're starting to see it. We have a, we have a, a solar powered winery in Texas and uh, some organic vineyards, but there are those difficulties there too. Mm-hmm. Let's let, let's kind of talk about um, start talking about viticulture. So the the science of growing grapes, and you know, I wonder if the wine industry battles some of the same things that other agricultural industries battle. Um, I, I can say that growing grapes is relatively low input. So throughout history. Uh, and, and one of the things that is amazing about growing grapes is that the vineyards throughout history in Europe were planted on poor soils. And, and oftentimes mm. uh, the valley floors, which, which, you know, you see a little bit more fertility kind of uh, flowing from the slopes of the, 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 you know, if you have a valley from the slopes down into the valley floor, you have a little bit more fertile soils. And those areas were a little bit more suited to other uh, agricultural products. So hmm. um, it's amazing in Burgundy. If, you, if you're traveling through Burgundy, the hillside is planted in very poor soils on the hillside. And then there's these beautiful sunflowers, which are on kind of the <laughs> valley floor, which take oh. a little bit more nitrogen. They take a little bit more nutrients for that. Really? Um, so, so it's kind of really incredible that viticulture and growing grapes have, have usually been, uh, occupying areas that have been unsuitable for, um, you know, for other, for other products. There's also a lot less of a water requirement. So, um, grapes only need about 20 inches of rainfall a year to be non-irrigated. Okay. Well that, that fits because I know Austin is about 
typically whenever we're not through these right, huge gyrations of too much rain. And we're, I think, about 31 or 32 inches of rain. Right. But as you go west, you get – so we're considered the semi-arid area. But if you go out into the high hill country and further out, we become more arid. And I don't know – I guess at some point you get too farther out west Texas, it's not enough rain. Right? Yeah, I, I certainly out in, in west Texas on the high plains, which is one of the real, real um, prospective areas of Texas. I mean, certainly we have the hill country, but there's a lot of um, – vineyards popping up on the high plains uh there you know there I, i'd say that most vineyards are irrigated mm-hmm. but it's almost like a yeah we might um we might need to irrigate if we have like three four weeks of no moisture in the vineyards mm-hmm. uh, so i don't think that there's a lot of dry farmed vineyards and that's what we call for folks listening out there the dry farmed is is not even having the irrigation lines uh, in the vineyard, as you can imagine, but all natural rain. Yeah, but you know that has actually evolved pretty substantially over time. Hmm. Um, you know, if you think about the way that uh, perhaps Romans used to irrigate, is they used to just flood the vineyard with uh, with water, mm-hmm. and you can imagine that there's evaporation and a lot of pr- and, and runoff. And now um, there is a real movement for drip irrigation where you have kind of a very measured amount of water going precisely when you need it Mm. and exactly, um, uh, you know, what you need. And you can even add some uh, nutrients in the form of drip irrigations. And that's what a lot of Hmm. -of state-of-the-art wineries are doing. Yeah. Now, back to this, the the, the hill, uh, high plains. I thought I heard somebody say at, at one of these wineries. I heard somebody say at, at one of these wineries I went to in, in the hill country that most of the grapes in Texas come from high plains up near, I guess, Abilene area. Or it, it's true. Uh, there's certainly, you know, I love doing tastings. I do a lot of comparative tastings where I'll compare, you know, the same grape variety from the same year where we're tasting it. Uh, the, the, from High Plains vineyards versus from uh, from the Hill Country vineyards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just more uh, area there that's suitable for grape growing. Uh, with a higher elevation, you have a little bit of the disease pressure that we see in the, in the um, Hill mm. Country is a little bit mitigated. Oh. So mold, which is a serious problem for vineyards, uh, no matter where in the world, there, mold issues... Uh, are a big problem, especially when you get time to harvest, when you have these really sugar-filled berries, you know, Mm. you have a bird that that picks one off, and then you've got, like, exposed sugar, and molds just can grow very easily. Really? And that ruins the whole crop, or it can eventually? uh, That's one of the reasons why wineries, once they bring the grapes in, it's very in vogue now to put them on a sorting table, so you can see any mold issues, Mm -hmm. and uh, before they actually go in the vat, to ferment and make wine, uh, those those moldy bunches are um, are removed. Mm-hmm. But so so you're not going to ruin a whole crop. But but we do hear of say like winemakers in Burgundy that they say, you know, we lost twenty uh, percent to mold. Meaning, you know, they brought in let's say they brought in a hundred tons, and then you know twenty tons were removed because of and 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 that is a, a substantial. It can be very substantial. Wow. Yeah. So, so the areas that, that do less with that are, you know, these areas that you see at cooler nights. Mm-hmm. So, so that, um, 
Yeah, con- when condensation it, or kind of con- yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's when your nighttime temperatures are uh, maintaining up in the eighties. Mm. Uh, you know, that's like mold and uh, and uh, funguses like these they kind love of love that. Atmosphere. They love this like body temperature uh, <laughs> atmosphere to to really uh, and so you know areas that are a very arid uh, and b high elevation and really cool nights. Do really well with grapes. So, ah, okay. so like which is if, what we don't have in the hill country. Hot right. it, in the summertime, it's usually maybe goes da- down to eighty degrees and up to a hundred. So, so that's something that a lot of the uh, I don't, anti-Texas wine industry people might cite. Mm. However, I've had really great conversations with uh, winemakers saying that will not prevent us from growing amazing grapes in the hill country. It just makes us more on our toes. So we can't just like, Mm -hmm. you know, go for vacation for a week during during harvest time or anything like that, that you have to really be paying attention. Whereas... You know, and and then organic vineyards, I think, over the long haul, are going to be a difficulty here in in the in the uh, hill country, hmm. for sure. Um, because you have to it, to keep the molds down. Do you, is there something that you treat it with? Yeah, or? I mean, there's the copper is sprayed. Hmm. Um, there's uh, sulfur is is often sprayed, although that can be used in organic uh, vineyards. Oh, okay. Um, but then you have areas like Argentina that is. Three five thousand uh, feet above sea level and completely arid conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's very little moisture in the air. It's very easy to grow organically, but then they suffer other <laughs> other challenges in the vineyard. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's you know let's. Um, I, I'm really enjoying this conversation, John. What, let's maybe hear a clip from. Mm. Uh, a, a a PhD in biodynamics. Uh-huh. Uh, he was from Italy, and he was in the co-op studios. Oh, about a year ago. His name is Francesco De Filippis, and uh, and he is winemaker and, and grower of uh, Cosimo Maria Massini in Tuscany. And and he actually did his PhD in in winery or vineyard uh, biodynamics, and so. We'll get a little sense of him about maybe what what we consider in the wine industry the most rigorous um, ecological, ecologically beneficial uh, system, which would be considered biodynamics. And then we'll kind of talk about it from there. So this is Francesco De Filippis uh, talking about biodynamics. I want you to uh, specify a little bit closer what biodynamics really are, because I think a lot of folks out there who are wine lovers might hear that word a lot and not be sure exactly what it means. Yes, yes. So, yes, um, now there is a, some um, uh, confusion on biodynamic, but uh, we, can, uh, we can clarify very quickly. So... Mm, biodynamic was uh, introduced by this big philosopher of the beginning of 20th century, Rudolf Steiner. Right. Steiner was a big head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he really focused and studied quite everything from agriculture to medicine, architecture, education. Maybe you know the Waldorf method, right. the Waldorf school. Right. Um, and so the historical origin of biodynamic uh, are related to the mm, philosophical uh, structure of uh, Steiner uh, thought, you know. Right. Uh, so uh, at the beginning of 19th century, after the first global war, mm-hmm. uh, 
the weapons industries in Europe switched their production for making uh, fertilizers and uh, chemical stuff for agriculture. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, is, unfortunately, is a very sad uh, uh, part of the agriculture history. A lot of uh, chemicals uh, have roots in uh, in the in the war industries. Right. So all the nitrogen used for making uh, uh, nerving gas and uh, and uh, nitroglycerin and bomb and other stuff right. were uh, used for making uh, fertilizers. Right. Um, because uh, uh, isn't that incredible that how something that was really meant to be to increase life and life force then turns into a a, a killing force? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Uh, uh, after the discovering of the. One other, another big scientist of the 20th century, von Liebig, who discovered the relationship between souls and plant nutrition. Okay. So before that, before von Liebig, uh, the 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 field were fitted with the compost, with the cow manure, right. uh, and with everything was organic, you know. Right. But w- after this. Discovering, mm, uh, uh, I mean, uh, farmers uh, were pushed to use uh, fertilizers, salts, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, uh, potassium, calcium, and so on. Which was really, which started killing the soil, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so uh, the f- farmers, uh, some farmers were very worried about the effects, the negative effects that they were seeing right, naturally uh, on the soil on the plants on the animals on themselves too right. so Steiner was the guru at that period of the <laughs> of right. the Europe and so they uh, asked to Steiner to find out some solutions right huh. and Steiner introduced the biodynamic agriculture that is a um, holistic method for farming right. <laughs> so the base of biodynamic and is very important to underline right. is the increasing the humus of soil increasing the organic matter the fertility the the life so increasing the mm, quantity of living beings of the soil right and uh, uh, is the most important thing to underline because uh, sometimes biodynamic is just uh, uh, confused with a hippie a hippie the, the, farming right or and new astrology. age a new age right. uh, new well there age is method. a there is a piece to that right i mean it, there is some there is uh, some uh reliance on constellations etc yes of course of course of course i will I, we will uh, we will okay. go on but uh the first purpose of biodynamic and and uh on the steiner conferences right. was uh, uh put our attention on the soil fertility. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I just want to highlight, as far as that goes, in 2012, for example, which was a hot year for you, you were telling me that um, that fertility allowed your vineyards to stay healthy uh, when the conditions were otherwise too hot for surrounding vineyards. Yes, yes. 2012 was an absolutely dry vintage. Um, I remember we had the last rain on the 21st May and uh, and, uh, and the next rain and the 
beginning of September. Right. So absolutely dried. And um, that sounds like Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. For Tuscany is not very common, right. uh, and so you have to understand the the adaptation uh, right. uh, plant adaptation. So right. uh, maybe Texas plants are more used for sure, this uh, sure, condition. Sure. Right. And so uh, you know, plants are very uh, slow uh, <laughs> to uh, adapt. Right. Yeah, to adapt. Yeah. So. They cannot move to different situation in a in a in a short time. time right. So, but we saw a very a big difference between our vines and neighbor vines. Right. So, the high humus concentration, high humus uh, uh, component of our soil, and the deep the depth of our uh, roots right. uh, allowed the plant to be very healthy uh, in, in those tough conditions yeah yeah wow so that was francesco di filippis um who is the winemaker and wine grower at uh, cosimo maria massini in tuscany uh, if you're just joining us my name is mark Rayshop. this is another bottle down where we talk about wine it's our earth day episode and john hoffner who is host of shades of green the green talk show here on co-op is joining me in the studio because we are talking about the environmental issues in the wine industry earth day coming up it's very exciting and there's a lot of earth day programming happening at co-op so um john you know biodynamics it's do you hear about this in other industries because it does exist in in other agricultural industries but the wine industry i think is really Leading the way. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yes, you hear about biodynamic uh, farming in, in, in general, and, and it is a topic in the environmental world. And I think it's interesting that he said the hippie times. Yeah. And, and <laughs> right. to me, that's a, a really interesting history. If you look at it, whatever, 40 years ago, it was, oh, yeah, if it's natural, you know, then it's cool. Right. And it's, right. it's a granola crowd. But there was really no formalization of it you know it was just okay this is natural well how do you prove it and i think what's really neat now is that so many things are certified so that consumers can say yes that is biodynamic that is organic and that's sustainable so i I, yeah it it is an issue in in the general sense of the environment but so is there a actual certification for biodynamic wine there is indeed it's called um demeter certified and that is really basing, as um, Francesco said, it's basing off of the studies of Rudolf Steiner and, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's really a holistic approach um, that considers the health of the soil. You need really, um, it needs to be chock full of life. Mm. Um, and he didn't quite get to this uh, because, you know, we only have an hour here to talk about all these environmental factors, <laughs> but um, there are some like pretty wild things in biodynamics, but they really do have a a reason. So um, there are two preparations that get a little bit um, kind of blasphemed, um, and one is that they um, so they pack um, horse manure in a skull of a uh, of a cow who's birthed and bury it for a while, and then they take after then they unearth it and then spray the vineyard with uh, a tea that they make. So Whoa. biodynamics is really into these compost teas. And mm. instead of and and that adds actually a, a ton of uh, organic nitrogen compounds into the soil. 
Huh. So somehow it concentrates by putting it in the skull. I mean, I guess the skull is probably more right, it's tradition a, than... Yes, um, although there there are some people who do say that um, there are certain components that are leached from that oh. and that it has to have uh, be a, a, a female um, cow that has already birthed because during their birthing cycle, they actually produce different hormones that change the bone structure. Wow. So anyway, so there, there is a <laughs> yeah. little bit. Um, and then there's also, you know, a lot of practices that are done via the constellations. Um, and I think that the, the best way that I can explain that and why it actually matters is because the biodynamics really look at the entire vineyard as a living being. Hmm. And if we think that, I mean, we are really um, affected by moon cycle and, and different, uh, different situations of the cosmos because, I mean, one of the biggest thing is water. Water is such a big piece in the vineyard and water actually Whatever it is, what is it, 95% or Ex more water? Exactly. That's one of the theories. But I want to I wanna kind of, um, you know, talk a little bit more in depth about this vineyard. A lot of biodynamic uh, vineyards use animals to work the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And actually mm -hmm. that is, um, if you look whole globally at what, where the greenhouse gas emissions of a vineyard are act actually lie. Uh, so vineyards, for the most part, in themselves are uh, are net positive, so mm -hmm. so they actually take greenhouse gases out of uh, the air, right? I'm explaining that's right. that yeah, correctly. That's right. Okay, yeah. CO2 is um, the main one. Yeah, yeah. So they take CO2 out mm -hmm. of out of the air. So uh, where do our greenhouse gases come from in vineyards? And the biggest one actually is um, through uh, machinery that are used to work the vineyard. Don't forget, mm -hmm. we have to work a vineyard the entire year in order to only get one grape harvest. Oh. So, and, and so they're using fuel and using gasoline fuel. and right Absolutely. diesel. Absolutely, and that actually uh, uh, accounts for 50 to 80% of the, of the greenhouse gases of a vineyard. And so when you start going back to tradition and working the vineyard with mules mm -hmm. which, or, or you know, other animals that, will then also add uh, organic nitrogen via, you know, their manure, et cetera, uh, into the vineyard. That is a real substantial way of, it, of reducing the greenhouse gases. Yeah, for, for, for CO2. For of course, CO2. methane, you get a little bit of methane gas off of the, the animals, the poop and all. But, but so that's a good point. Um, I, I will say that um, the biggest non-CO2 uh, problem gas in a vineyard is actually nitrous oxide, which... Um, when inorganic nitrogen is added to a vineyard in terms of fertilizer, mm. it will, um, if it's brought to runoff and it, um, and it can actually bind up and create nitrous oxide, that is actually 298 times as harmful to the environment as carbon dioxide. Yeah, yeah. Similar to... Methane gas. And I methane is, we, we were talking similar. about methane before, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's a similar, methane's a lot more potent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, you say that, that it's the fuel and the issues associated with the, the machines that they use to farm it. That's real similar to the ethanol industry. Several, many years ago, I guess it's been whatever, four or five years ago, people were really upset saying, and, and it was all propaganda, that the um, ethanol that we were making to put into to vehicles was basically raising the price and, and it was being subsidized right. by 
you know, for, for, for all the, the corn. But it turns out that the reason prices started rising was because of oil and gas prices were so high that it made it unaffordable to do it otherwise. So that making methanol, the price went up not because we were affecting all the other products from corn. It was the fact that the oil and gas was so expensive. So it must be real similar that the machines that they use to make the ethanol as in harvesting it and all is in transporting it right. is, is, is the major factor from a carbon standpoint and expense. So yeah, interesting parallel there. And, and then, and then just to kind of top off the greenhouse gases from a vineyards, uh, you also have a lot of pumps and certain things that are powered and a lot of vineyards are going to have solar panels in the actual vineyard to, to partake, to, to handle all of the vineyard operations. And I think that that's awesome. a great thing. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. I've, I've actually designed a couple, systems for water pumping you know for underground water pump and it it makes so much sense to have a a little array right there next to the pump and and really you can even design it such that when as soon as the sun starts coming up it starts the pump automatically and you don't even have to have a battery backup so i, I don't oh, know do you have brilliant. to run the do you have to run the pumps at well, night well, don't for forget, well don't forget that um you know a vineyard is a relatively low water input agricultural product so it, it's it's really perhaps um you know, just a couple inches of, of water, you know, every, every, you know, three, four weeks. Really? So, so it's at the bottom of the, the chart on products that need water. And actually that this, this brought me to something that uh, Francesco said that, that the vines, you know, vines are, um, a perennial, uh, plant that, that can live up to hundreds of years. Mm. And during that time they establish a root structure, which can go down 20 feet or so, and they can actually tap reservoirs. Uh, I think the most famous um, of those situations is in Bordeaux, where there's limestone-rich subsoils that go uh, 20, 30 feet wow. down into the ground. And if you're there under the in the caves, you can actually see the roots. Coming into the cave. They're coming down, and, and uh, limestone really holds water. And mm-hmm. so the roots have uh, really gone deep in order to access those reservoirs. Fantastic. And then that's an argument for not... So if you train a vine to not be irrigated... Its roots are going to keep on going down to 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 try and search for water, and so that's one of the arguments of dry farming that you want the roots to really establish their mm-hmm. uh, strong network instead of you know getting junk food where the the, <laughs> right. the, the, the grower is just giving it to you a foot down, and they, and you don't have to work too hard for it. Where it's that's if, right. If your if your roots that are really working and they're going down to the caves, uh, it, that, that's interesting. And is it isn't it also true that? For a, for an actual vineyard, it takes three or four years or a certain number of years before you really get it established and can get grapes out of that it. That is very so. true. So third leaf is what they call it. So that is the third year that uh, after it's planted, usually you know planted from grafting uh, from a nursery in the spring, and then you have three more years. And um, but then it's really not until ten years. And uh, a lot of winemakers talk about the 20-year mark as far as high-quality oh, grapes. Really so those that grapes long. that are going into the ultra-premium bottles, uh, yes, because they get out of their, um, uh, I like to say, their, their teenage years <laughs> where they start, they don't uh, put so much energy into their leaves, mm-hmm. which is their growth mechanism, right? right they right, put they... all of their energy into their reproduction, which is their berries. Ah, I see. So they finally become adults. They and... kind of finally... Yeah. 
know, 20 years. Be responsible. Okay, yeah. it's time to stop playing around <laughs> and eating junk food and get the roots down and get the, the berries out. That's Interesting. Right. John, we have to take a break. We're running really behind because we're enjoying this conversation. Uh, if you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Grayshap. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P, HD1, HD3, Hornsby. And we'll be right back with John Hoffner after these messages. Support comes from Earth Day Austin 2017. This year at Houston Tillotson University, Saturday, April 22nd, noon to 7 p.m. Featured will be interactive exhibits, immersive programming, and a glimpse of the future of mobility in Austin. Info on transportation and parking options and family-friendly activities at earthdayaustin.com. Co-op Radio, in partnership with the Alamo Draft House, presents a free concert with Tony Harrison, Academy of Western Artists award-winning vocalist and bandleader, Friday, April 21st at 8 p.m. at the new Alamo Draft House Cinema at Mueller's Barrel of Fun Bar, located at 1911 Aldrich Street. More info about the concert and co-op's monthly music events at Alamo Mueller at koop.org. All right, we are back. It's Earth Day, episode of Another Bottle Down, and we're joined in the studio by John Hoffner. Thank you so much for everybody tuning in and and do support all of the co-op programs uh, throughout this month that are doing a lot of really special things for Earth Day. Uh, John, you just must be so so busy with uh, getting everything set. Tell us a little bit about there's 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 the the actual celebration that this is this Saturday, which you're yes. going to be which you're going to be involved in, right? I am, and I I will say that I'm not as involved as our co-host Reed and uh, Amy Stansbury and. Stacy Savage, it's it's going to be, we're hoping, the biggest ever Earth Day that we've had in Austin. And Dallas is supposed to even be uh, bigger and better, but I think Austin will be better. <laughs> we like having uh, different reasons for saying it's great in Austin. But just so <laughs> yeah. everybody knows, it, it's from 12 to 6 this Saturday, and it will be at the Houston Tillotson uh, campus, which is at 600 Chicon and 7th Street. So it's a new venue. With For the last few years, we've been over there at the uh, Mueller Airport. But this one is going to be really cool. There's a lot of events for kids. There's a, a march for science uh, that is actually starting uh, and ending up at the Capitol. I guess I better make sure of that. But that is a march for science and a rally for science in the planet. Uh, that will is being uh, organized by Blackshear Elementary through Houston Tillotson Campus and ending up at the field. So if if you really want to find out a bit about it, rather than me giving you all the details, sure. Austin or Earth Day Austin altogether dot com is where it's all all the events that are going to happen that day. I will say another uh, thing that's really going to be interesting is one of our biggest issues in Austin is mobility mm-hmm. and everybody is realizing and feeling the pain. We used to be able to say, ah, oh, Houston is the worst. You know, they've got the traffic problems, but we're ranked, uh, I think second behind Houston on, on transportation issues, but there will be some really cool stuff there. There, the, 
they will have a, a driverless autonomous vehicle that you can actually get up in and drive around. Um, and the whole idea is that if we are going to be moving to autonomous vehicles, people need to have confidence in it and, and not be afraid that these right. things are going to... I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to have a lot, having more of those vehicles on the road because they are supposedly a lot better than human drivers. Yeah. How cool is that? One other thing that I'm really excited about is you can ride your bicycle there. And they have valet parking oh, that's for awesome. your bicycle as a bicycle nut. Um, Would they wash it too while you're uh... <laughs> right? Well, and uh, for me, I'll say, hey, listen, you know, like those commercials, don't don't drive it too hard, you know, right, take right, your right. portion <laughs> all over the the, the uh, parking lot. But yeah, that that's really cool. And then the one last thing, I guess, one more about transportation, they will have what's called a graffiti bus. So they're going to have a bus that's going to be wrapped in some kind of. Um, paper or, or big canvas and you can go up to it and, and ride on it and tell them what your latest thoughts are about transportation in Austin and how you think we're going to solve this in 25 years. Yeah, well um, in honor of our Earth Day episode here on the show, I rode my bike to the studio today. You and, man. Uh, and I should do it more often, but, but you know, I, I guess just taking it piece by piece. That's uh, right. Little steps. Little steps. And if everybody uh, does their piece, um, you know, it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's delve back into, you know, so we kind of talked about biodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really doing amazing things for vineyards. I mean, they're, the, you yeah. know, the diversity of plants. Also just uh, can't be just, or most biodynamic uh, vineyards don't just have vineyards. They have orchards they have livestock oh, other pro- and that's other actually products, farm a products. part of the whole ecosystem so it's to look at the whole ecosystem ah so there yeah like other farming it, it makes sense to have certain uh, farm products with others because of the way they coexist and absolutely I guess that's the same yeah. with wine so there's another uh thought in in winemaking or in, in grape growing it's this idea of integrative pest management so and that has to do with a lot of um uh the, the what we call kind of cover crops that the 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 plants that are planted in between the uh, vineyard rows mm. and so some of those plants are chosen for um their ability to attract positive uh, insects and bugs that will then prey on the negative ones. Mm. So I I think that that's, I've even seen vineyards where uh, a vine will be missing and you've got this really vibrant uh, other herb that is then just swarming with bees. (laughs) Okay. Super cool. And 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 it's, it's really part of having a whole ecosystem in your vineyard. Okay. So, so I guess a grape, Plants don't need other, they don't need bees or something to pollinate it, or is there anything? No, they are self-pollinating. self-pollinating. So, so yeah, they will, um, you have a flower that then is self-pollinated. So uh-huh. it's actually the um, same genetic material that goes into the berries. Um, so, so you don't need other, but, but there are always, you know, having a diversity of bugs is always very beneficial. Yeah, interesting. So I, in, in, on Shades of Green, we always try to give our listeners like you say, every little bit helps. And so we try yeah. to encourage people in your daily lives to do whatever you can to reduce your footprint. So for winemaking, I think we already talked about it. For a biodynamic certification, can somebody go into a 
uh, I mean, besides going to the website and finding out if the wine you buy is biodynamic, is right. there a certification on the actual bottle? So Demeter, so, so you do have Demeter that, that you can find on the bottle. Um, is that like a li- little label It's insertion? kind of a little uh, font that says Demeter on ah, the back okay. label. Right. But, you know, again, a lot of wineries who are biodynamic don't. Put, don't do that because it actually costs quite a bit of money to certify yourself. Right. Well, see, that's... Uh-huh. Which is an ongoing, you know... And, and then, and then I, I talk with a lot of French winemakers or Italian winemakers who are saying, you know, why do I have to pay somebody to come into my vineyard when I've just been, I'm doing the same thing I've done for two generations, three, yeah. you know, four generations. Right, right. And, and so they almost see it as an affront because, you know, they're, they're, they're being kind to their vineyard to begin with. Right, right. And so why, that's right. Why should they pay but I, but I, I do have to say, so, I mean, if, if you do go into like a local shop that, that has knowledgeable wine people and, uh, I'm sure that, you know, they would be able to direct folks to biodynamic producers that they are, that they are carrying. I mean, if, uh, while you're tasting wine in order to carry something in a wine shop, we often talk about, Hey, this is biodynamic practices, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. another certification that, you know, you can see, um, and I don't think we have enough time to play the clip from Christine Colley. I don't think we have enough time to play the clip from Christine Collier, who is uh, the managing director of Willamette Valley Vineyard. She was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, and she really believes in the live certification. So this is big in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Live, which means low input, viticulture, and enology. Oh, wow. So that's a good acronym. It's a great acronym, yeah. So the, it, it's not literally that it's live, is it? Or what does that have any... <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's just, it's just saying that... Um, so this is a way of kind of helping to define sustainability because sustainability can mean so many uh, different things. And sometimes in the vineyard world, organic practices, uh, you know, if they mean running the tractor through uh, so many more times or uh, for whatever other reason, there are some really aggressive organic substances that can be used. Some wineries believe that, um, you know, they should take it into their own hands and, and, and this live actually certification actually uh, requires that each year you get better in certain things. Hmm. So it's kind of an interesting way of looking at that. Um, and is it is it a uh, self-regulated by the industry that's live? Or, no, there is an actual third-party certification. Third party. And there, there's an icon. Um, and I'm sure if you Google uh, live uh, certification, that, that'll come up, that okay. icon. Yeah. Um, another thing that's really hot in the Pacific Northwest, and it's kind of, uh, somewhat involved with the live certification is the salmon safe. I don't know if that Mm -hmm. that's popped up on your radar with other things, but, um, in the Pacific Northwest, salmon is such a a valuable natural resource and runoff of vineyards and, 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 uh, the water issues of a winery, which I'd like to get, get into here in a second, uh, the water issues of a winery and runoff and wastewater really can harm the, um, you know, the mating habits of salmon and, and really, oh, be, really be endangering those populations. Right. So there's a certain, is there just. Again, a, a, an industry standard for that? There or? is. There's yeah. a salmon safe, and that is, um, you know, that is actually not just the wine industry. Right. Well, I think that would be uh, for it, farming for in general. everything for farming, but even for building standards in, like, Seattle. And, oh, really? Uh, it, the, the whole point is to really look at the wastewater. Um, 
Let's 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 take another sh- quick short break. We we want to hear from our calendar of events mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of kind of really cool stuff going on in the wine world, uh, and we will be right back. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio. Tuesday, April 18th, and there are so many fun wine and food events in the upcoming weeks for Austin, Texas. Tonight at Loca de Oro, there will be a Passover Seder hosted by owners Fiore and Adam, as well as Rabbi Neil Blumhoff. The multi-course dinner will be kosher for Passover. Wednesday, April 19th, at the Wine and Food Foundation of Texas, there will be a class on obscure grape varieties of the world. More information at winefoodfoundation.org. And for full disclosure, I will be involved in this class. Saturday, April 22nd, at the Indian Spring Park in Waco, Texas, will be the Rootstock Wine Festival, featuring over 18 Texas wineries and several top Texas restaurants. More information at rootstockwinefest.com. Tuesday, April 25th, at 5.30 at the Carillon, winemaker Sergio Quadra from Fall Creek Vineyards will present red and white wines from their vintner selection, as the Carillon's chef, Dan Bressler, presents mouthwatering appetizers. Thursday, April 27th, at Vine Vault on Congress, they will be hosting a tasting of six 100-point Robert Parker scored wines. More information at vinevault.com. And of course, April 28th to the 30th is the Austin Food and Wine Festival. Tons of local and internationally acclaimed chefs and winemakers. AustinFoodAndWineFestival.com Saturday, April 29th from 1 to 8 p.m. at the French Legation will be the Love Belgian Beer Fest, benefiting the Boys and Girls Club of Austin. Local breweries and imports will be showcasing Belgian beer styles. More information at Eventbrite.com May 3rd at 7 p.m. at Central Standard will be a multi-course wine dinner with Dina Mondavi, daughter of Michael Mondavi and granddaughter of the famous Robert Mondavi. And now she is managing director of Folio Wine Group. If you have a wine-related groovy event you would like mentioned on the calendar, send me an email at markrayshap at koop.org. All right, we are back. This is another bottle down. It's our Earth Day special of this show, where we talk about wine and the wine industry. And, the, and, and today, I'm live in the studio with John Hoffner. We're talking about uh, environmental issues of the wine industry. So, again, thank you for being here. And um, let's let's kind of so we kind of talked about some certifications in the vineyard. Let's move over to um, some of the winery uh, operations because uh, it. It uh, it does. It's not easy to make wine. You know? <laughs> no. I mean, they've been doing it for thousands of years, but you know, things have not been sanitary. You know, throughout history, and they and they just allow the grapes to do their thing. Today, there's a lot of cleaning, mm. uh, which, which involves water and chemicals and um, cleaning chemicals. And um, I have a, a, a few statistics here about about water usage in wineries. Okay, and um, it takes. About 75 gallons of water, uh, one statistic said, takes about 75 gallons of water 
to make one gallon of wine in the North Coast, in premium wine growing territory. 75 gallons for one gallon. For one gallon of okay. wine. Uh, another statistic said um, in the Central Valley, where you have more massive uh, winery operations, more industrial scale, um, we, we see 430 gallons to make oh. one gallon. And, and much of that is cleaning, and yeah. you know a lot of things are automated and... And that also involves uh, vineyard water as well. But I think that uh, one of the more, you know, wine is really not as bad as beef, chocolate, and coffee. Um, and, and so we see, like, one of the better wineries, Snoqualmie in Washington State, is down to, like, 2.9 gallons of water for, for one gallon of wine. Wow. Um, is that because they recycle? Or, yes. And, so and there's, when you say used, like, 75 gallons, that is, like down the drain water or is it just that that it's it's used and, and can be reused yeah so um the the big innovations in today's uh, winemaking world is really recycling cleaning water and uh or like fetzer who's really leading the way fetzer winery and uh they have a huge production facility in um in mendocino california and they are actually um uh, they're also dedicated to, to being net positive by 2030, and they are actually um, processing the water with uh, worms and, and bacteria mm-hmm. to then actually be able to use again. So after the water leaves the facility for cleaning or whatever, then it goes into a storage tank where it goes through a processing that, that cleans it up. Um, and then they use it and back then they use it operation. again. That's great. That's yeah, perfect. Or might or might uh, you know uh, irrigate their vineyards from it, or or for whatever mm. you know whatever uh, necessary that they need. So, yeah, th- so, I mean that's and and that I think it, that takes a lot of money. I know, and um, but that's where I see a lot of okay. uh, attention now in the wine industry. Well, that's fantastic. I I wish I had brought the statistic, but I know that the almond industry was being hammered for. The, I don't know how many gallons it was. Was something like nine gallons for one almond, or something ridiculous? Yeah, right, but right. I know the industry refuted it by saying, "Well, that was some worst example." But water is is a is definitely a huge issue in farming and industry in general. And interestingly, in, in I guess the '80s or whenever it was, I was in California, and they had a huge drought. You know, they were like they have been in the last few years, and they had all the. Um, the slogans of, of how to save water, you know, shower with your partner, and if it's yellow, let it mellow. But at that time, 95% of the water in California was for farming and for agricultural industries. And they had these 100-year-old contracts that just allowed them to use infinite amounts of water, and they were paying very little. And so uh, I always figured, well, if everybody saved, all the consumers saved you know, 100%, you'd still only save 5% of the, the, the water use in California. But I know that they've looked at a lot of those uh, industries and reduced it significantly, where now it's it's down to about 50% of, the, of all the water is used for the ag industry. And so it's exciting to hear that that the same thing is going on in the the wine industry that you know water they're focusing on their their biggest uh, it sounds like that may be the biggest environmental 
impact of a winery? The um, well, you know, of course, you have the the cooling systems are another big one, and I've seen a lot of innovation there. There's these really cool designed wineries that uh, will take in cool air at night. Mm-hmm. And, and use that to, in a way that, that kind of captures it and, uh, and, and, then, and then it will be recycling that cool air. And of course, this is one of the reasons why traditionally these uh, cellars were in cellars so basements, right? you know, because, <laughs> because they, they didn't need to, to cool them. And, and wine just really loves that, you know, 50 to 60 degree climate. And that's why, it, why it's, while it's aging, right? Or that's e- while even, it's aging. Or even in your So winery. that can actually be a substantial, well, in the winery too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is part of the aging cycle. So so um, at higher temperatures, actually, you know, barrels breathe, as I'm sure you've heard, mm-hmm. and uh, they can lose water through evaporation. And so you're actually losing wine. Ah. And, and that occurs higher at higher temperatures. Right. So um, that could be one of the reasons why Madeira is so expensive. Madeira is heated. So it's losing wine through mm. water evaporation at a very fast rate. Really? And that, but that concentrates the wine? It does concentrate the wine. The it concentrates the flavor. It concentrates the alcohol. Um, but, but wineries in California, it it's really behooves them to keep their, uh, their, their environs uh, at a cooler temperature because then you know, they're losing wine, and that doesn't allow them to really charge more or less on the, you know, on the shelves. So True. It's tricky. That's a double-edged sword. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that, uh, and again, I should have looked it up before the show, that, that a winery, its buildings and its operations can be uh, certified to something like LEED or, or Energy Star. Yeah. So uh, I haven't seen uh, wineries uh, doing that because I, I think that that's more their business operation instead of a, 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 marketable, a marketable sort of entity right, uh, that right. they would maybe put on. But uh, you do see uh, some producers that say totally solar-powered on the back label. Okay. But I don't know if it behooves them to actually get the full certification. Yeah, because that is expensive. That takes um, a, quite a bit of time and quite a bit of, of uh, ingenuity and, and uh, engineering to actually get that certification. But and, and, and it would be, I guess, questionable whether it really gains them anything. Right. So, so maybe that's back to a question for you as the, the wine aficionado. Can I, any can people see a difference between an organically or biodynamically uh, grown wine taste wise? I mean, is there is there an advantage of that, or is yeah, it all for good? good John, we only have two more minutes left in the <laughs> right, show. I know that's a whole show I, right there. Right? You know, I, I think that there is a real, real difference between industrially produced wine and more artisanal wine. Mm. And, um, and I think that, uh, wineries and vineyards that, that really, um, try to do the best thing for the vineyard. And in most cases that is being biodynamic or organic, um, that is going to translate into higher quality grapes. Now it could probably be debated whether that is, you know, because of the, because of the uh, the actual practices, or just because they're more time in the vineyard, and you could like pick a rotten grape here or there, you know, it's, it, there's advantages to being in the vineyard more. Yeah, yeah, and so, and hands on rather than these big industrial where they go out and get the grapes and just put them all in the vat, I guess, or whatever whatever the next step is. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we are pretty much out of time here, John. Thank, yeah. you, thank so you so much, much. for being. 
for being here on the show. And I've had a lot of fun talking about these environmental issues for the wine industry. And there's, there's really so much more. I mean, we didn't get into packaging. Kegs are kind of in vogue now. But, well, you know, we'll, it was always next year, right? Well, there's also the, a reason for to have you on Shades of Green as All right. our guest. And, and I will just say that this Thursday from 1 to 2 p.m., we will be doing a special on the Earth Day. So we'll have guests from the people that will be involved in Earth Day. It should be a good show. A lot of fun. Awesome. Thank well, you, Mark. Stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix. And everybody have a wonderful week. Uh, hope to see you all at Earth Day on, uh, on Saturday.